So here's a, here's a fact about how, how we function at Crosswinds is that in certain senses we're shameless uh, thieves uh, of various things. Um, we realized, we realized uh, years ago now that, that planting churches in places like Godwin Heights, Godfrey Lee, northwest side of Grand Rapids, places like that is not the same as planting churches in, um, in traditional American suburban settings. And so when a lot of us came into church planting back in the day, the philosophy was find a growing middle-class Caucasian neighborhood where they're building development, set up a church, the church will naturally grow. That was, that was sort of the philosophy at, at that time in the, in the late 90s, early 2000s. What they didn't realize was that, was that postmodernism was, was coming quickly and with postmodernism and a lot of other upheaval post-Christendom. And so, so the thing about that, though, is that in urban neighborhoods like Goblin Heights, Godfrey Lee, uh, you don't really get postmodern as much because a majority of the, uh, of the people living in the community were actually pre-modern. They never became modern. And they had long been post-Christendom came earlier to urban neighborhoods. So I, I remember when I used to go out to speak to, uh, to suburban congregations just to explain to what we were doing, I would always say, greetings from the future, because what happens in a neighborhood like ours uh, now will happen in suburban neighborhoods within a decade. That's just sort of, sort of the move and, and all of that. But I say that to say that we realize that traditional American church planting uh, 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 philosophy did not work in, in our neighborhoods and probably never would. And so we came to view ourselves more as, as urban missionaries. And we took on the mindset of, uh, of a missionary. Therefore, we spend a lot of our time learning from missionaries. And so if you wanted to understand the core of the thought process of what goes into to crosswinds and kind of makes uh, a lot of our, our thinking go, you would have to, uh, have to go first to Southeast Asia, to the Philippines, and understand the stuff that I learned uh, from one of my heroes and mentors, uh, Bishop Nonon. Uh, and then the other place you would have to go to is New York City, because Rob and I, and then the next year, uh, Dave Block and I traveled to New York City twice, and we've been shamelessly stealing what Pioneers has been doing there and what Josh has, has been learning there. So if you've ever uh, done Discovery Bible Study, or you're familiar with us talking about it, or you're familiar with that, that idea, we just took that from, from them, and we spend as much time, we always say, we've got to go visit our missionary, but what we do is we go visit our missionary, and we try to watch as much of what they're doing as possible, because what we learned from them and what we continue to learn from them is invaluable in making us uh, who we are, but not only that, in making us more effective uh, in, in what we want to do. And, and certainly we have not, have not arrived. There are, there are significant differences in American culture from Southeast Asian cultures, even New York City immigrant cultures, the mixing of Christian culture into people who are essentially post-Christian in, in, their, in, in their affections or, or non-Christian or never Christian, all of that uh, convalescing or coalescing here uh, does make mission difficult, and often we don't know the answer, but that's why we like people who are pioneers. They don't know the answer uh, 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 there yet. They, they, they said on the video, but there's a, hey, we'll, we'll go. 
I enjoy it because one of my, one of my all-time favorite videos is from, from another group of missionaries that are, that are very similar to what they're doing at, doing at Pioneers, but they, they do a similar thing, and they go in, and they begin to learn the culture, and they learn the culture, and they learn the culture, and they listen to the Spirit. And the most interesting thing about this, I was watching a video, or actually I think I was reading a book uh, about this group that had gone in, and they spent 10 years learning the language and the culture before they could ever share a word of the gospel because what had happened is people who had come in not understood the culture, not understood what was going on, shared the gospel, and it got, in, it got reinterpreted into their own religious system so that it became uh, synchronistic, uh, synchronistic, animistic religions with a mix of Jesus thrown in. And so these missionaries w- went in, and they said, we will not do that. We will learn the culture, and we will learn the language. They waited 10 years, and they must have been like, come on, God, we've been here 10 years, we're not even sharing the gospel yet. Will there ever be an effect, uh, an impact here? The interesting thing, though, as you read that, is that when they began to share the gospel after 10 years of preparing, after 10 years of getting ready, after 10 years of being sure that they could communicate the gospel in a clear and effective way, when that happened, the whole tribe or the whole village came to Jesus, And it impacted me in this way because I realized that in places like Godwin Heights, in places like Godfrey Lee, in places like like Thailand, we might not have the answer yet, but we are followers and communicators of the good news of one who absolutely clearly knows what the answer is. And so it encouraged me as an urban missionary to know that the time will come when God will act as God acts. And it's my job to be here and, and learn and do that. And so that has nothing to do with our message. That is just a, meant to be an affirmation that this man, though he was our intern, has been hugely, hugely, and, and Mindy too. She's called and done, uh, done uh, conference calls with, uh, with some of our ladies about how to do our outreach. These two have been greatly impactful in what, what we do in understanding how we're going to do mission because if, if Godwin Heights is 10 years uh, ahead of, of, of the suburbs of Grand Rapids, New York City is light years ahead of Godwin Heights as to, as to the change. And so uh, that, was, uh, that was free. Um, <laughs> uh, Philippians chapter 4. I'll begin in verse 10, and I'll, I'll read to you. Uh, I rejoice in the Lord greatly, because again, you renewed your care for me. You were, in fact, concerned about me, but lacked the opportunity to show it. I don't say this out of need, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know how to make do with little, and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstance, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Still, you did well by partnering with me in my hardship. Paul, uh, Paul, our, 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 our ultimate uh, example in, in some senses of what it is to be a missionary, of what it is uh, to, to share the gospel, um, had the unfortunate reality that he was, he was in and out of prison for doing so. And so he's going through hardship, and at various times the Philippian church has, church has helped him. And at one time they're looking for a way to help him, but they, they couldn't. And then at another time they, they do help, help him. And so that's kind of the, the background. Where I want to focus uh, this morning uh, is in verse 11. Uh, 11 and following predominantly, where he says this, I don't say this out of need, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. Now, 
I think in some senses, this is a, this is a very familiar passage if you're, if you're in church or you've grown up in church, you've been around church. Certainly, we're going to get to the end of the passage and then we're going to talk about one of the most uh, famous verses in popular culture, meaning even people that know nothing about Jesus are walking around with, with that verse on, on their clothing. We'll talk about that in a minute. But I think that the, this passage is... is um, is somewhat known or, or quite well known in, in the church. But I want to make sure that our understanding of what this, this passage says and what this passage is communicating is, is correct. And so the first part is the part I feel that we're most uh, familiar with when he says, I don't say this out of need, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know how to do, make do with little. This is kind of common when we read this passage. I think that's naturally where most of us go. We go, look, Paul's learned how to make do with little, and then we try and apply it to ourselves. I need to know how to make do with little or to be content. He's talking about contentment. He does not have... Um, a driving need for that which he does not does not have. And so we're sort of familiar with that. If you've had the opportunity to, to see that in, in action, it can be a very, very, very uh, beautiful and sobering thing to realize that there are people out there whose contentment in, what, in their life where they have almost nothing is just, is just amazing. And you look at it and it's almost incomprehensible. My mom... Uh, 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 my mom grew up in a situation that I always thought was, was uh, instructive to us as, as her, her children. But my mom grew up in, in such a state of poverty. She actually grew up on a piece of property that is, if you're from Grand Rapids, you'll understand this, where the Whitecaps field is now, they had a tiny house on the corner of where that property was. And it was a tiny ramshackle house. My, my grandfather whom I believe I've seen twice or three times in my life, ran off with another woman while my grandma was pregnant for my mother. And so he was not in, in the, the scene. Given the time and the place in, in history, the removal, and it's still true, the removal of a husband or a father from the family's economic and social situation often dives them deep into poverty. And that's what happened with, with my mom. Her family uh, dove deep in, into poverty. Uh, she lived with her, her mom and her two sisters, but the poverty was great. The poverty was so great in their, in their, um, in their life that, that at one point, the, the, the plumbing broke to their house and it was never repaired. They didn't have indoor, indoor plumbing. And now my mom certainly uh, was older, but this was not a time in American history where we didn't have indoor plumbing. And so the family, to use, to use the toilet, had to use a pot and then it had to be dumped into the backyard, which I don't, which I don't say to gross you out, but I say to, to make the point that the poverty was pretty extreme. I remember her telling me once about their favorite, most exciting meal. If things went really good and they had a really good week, they would have jello on, on Sunday night. And so to most of us, jello is dessert or jello is a side. So what did they have with the jello? No, they had jello. She grew up in such, uh, such, a, uh, such a deep, Poverty that, that they, they had almost nothing. 
The interesting thing about that, though, is that those are not the stories that my mom really told of her, of her childhood. She told us stories of playing cards with grandpa and grandma. She told us stories about, about walking to meet different people. She told us, uh, told us all kinds of stories about coming up through life, but she never emphasized this, this poverty. In fact, if you, if you listened to her, to her stories, um, you never heard in them any sort of hint of, well, this was the worst thing ever, or I had a terrible childhood. In fact, by, by any, sort of, any sort of objective measure, this is not a good childhood to grow up in, to grow up in deep poverty, to grow up without indoor plumbing, to go, grow up without enough food to eat, to grow up with a father who's never in your life and is running around, to grow up with a mother uh, whom we all love deeply. My grandma was awesome, but she did not know Jesus, so she could not raise my mother in it. These are not the stories that she ever told, and she never seemed to be sad. She would describe her childhood as wonderful. You bring that into adulthood. Uh, my mom marries my, my dad. We were not, uh, we were not raised in, um, in poverty. My dad uh, graduates from high school at the perfect time to get a job at a place called Steelcase. Steelcase is a large factory, uh, was much larger here in Grand Rapids. At the time he graduates, people who got jobs in that factory could do very, very well. And so I am the youngest of five who lived a very, very comfortable life. We did not uh, grow up with any of, of the negatives of poverty. We only grew up with one, one thing. I remember I was reading about poverty once and realized that my mom had raised us in poverty in one way, and that was people in poverty tend to express love through food, and my mother certainly did that. I do not and cannot view that as a negative. It was wonderful. But the amazing thing was, my mom was the example of what this, this, this says here. I have learned to be content with little. And I think when most of us read this passage, that's immediately where we go. Oh, yeah, if I'm going to follow Jesus, I've got to learn to be content with little. And, and even saying it aloud sort of depresses us. And then we start to go, well, how little? And what can I define as a little? And typically we define that as a little less, but we don't want it to be that much less. And then I think the other thing is that most of us view ourselves through the lens of, of poverty. So no matter what we have, we view ourselves as somehow impoverished in, in the situation we have. Well, I don't have this, or I don't have that, or my friends got to go out to eat and I couldn't afford it, or that couple gets to have a date night at the movies and I couldn't do that. And so we tend to, to define this sort of Poverty, our poverty, by that which we don't have. And then that, by definition, breeds a, a lack of contentment. We're like, I wish I had this. I wish I had that. And so the first thing Paul, the Apostle Paul says, I have learned to be content, whether I have a little or not. Uh, I have learned, I know how to make do with the... Uh, I know how to make do with little, and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I've learned the secret of being content. Now, I think what I just gave to you, what I just said to you, is how most of us read this passage. We view ourselves from the perspective of poverty. We view ourselves, no matter where we are, as having little, and we're always wishing we had more. But if we're not too complaining about wishing that we had more, we congratulate ourselves. Oh, I wish I had more. 
but I'm not going to complain about it. I wish I had more, but I'm not going to be too sad about it. I know that the person next door has more, but I'm not going to be too jealous today, and we're fighting against it. And so that is one thing, and it is a reality for some of us that we do not have a lot. It is a reality for, for some of us that, that we, we do not have much, and we may have experienced or will experience actual poverty uh, at least in the American sense. And so you do need to learn to be content with a the little. There's a reality, by the way, speaking of, of American poverty, there's a reality that even amongst the poorest amongst us in this room, if we were to plug the numbers, the amount of money that you make, the amount of wealth, the amount of income you have, into a calculator, you would still be in the top 10% in world wealth, right? So Poverty is relative, but even in, in the sense that if you find yourself to be in relative poverty, that's how most of us read this passage in terms of, well, if I'm ever poor, I should learn to be content with it. What hit me about this passage, though, is the second part that I think that we ignore. The, the passage, the Apostle Paul does say, I've learned to be content with a little. And then he says, I have learned to make do with a lot. We never really read that part of the passage, and it never really occurred to us, and that's the one that hit me. I have learned to make do with a lot. That would seem to be the easiest thing ever. Like, I remember back in the day, there was a book called The Prayer of Jabez. The Prayer of Jabez, we're not going to talk about what that actually was, but in the prayer, prayer of Jabez, there was a time when they're like, challenge God with a challenge prayer. And the end of the prayer of Jabez, they always said, God says, test him with this. See if he will do it. Here's a prayer that I, don't, that, that I think most of us would love to pray. God, give me a lot, test me in this, see if I can do it, Right? Sometimes I come to you and I say, you should pray, pray prayers like, like this, you know. Uh, you should be aware that you're going to have to sacrifice. You should ask Jesus to take everything from you so that you can see him. Sometimes I come to you and I say, there's, there's difficult prayers. But the prayer we never think of as difficult as this is the one where he says, I have made, I have learned to make do with a lot. And most of us are going, I would also like to learn to make do with a lot. If this, this is a matter of discipleship, I, like Paul, would like to learn that. If Paul learned to make do with a lot, me too. I'd like to do that. So I don't think many of us see ourselves in that passage where it says, I have learned to make do with a lot. But I think it's at the heart of, of the passage. And, it, and it's at the heart of the thing. Yes, we do need to learn to make do with, with a little. But the reality is, some of us have never been tested in this, and some of us have. But we have not learned to make do with a lot. Our assumption, our cultural thought process is, is that those who have a lot are naturally happier. Our, our, our thought process is, is that the person with the, the bigger car is the person that's happier, or the fancier car is the happier person. I always assume I have a flat tire right now uh, that, that I'm working on getting fixed, but I assume the person who has the kind of tire that's not always going flat is happier than me, and that he doesn't have to work as hard at his spirituality as, as, as I do. And yet the passage does not seem to suggest that, but rather it suggests this. Rather you have a lot or a little, you need to learn to be content, because the reality that seems to be suggested here 
is this, is that our contentment is, is not connected to whether we have a lot or whether we have a little. It's connected to whether we want a lot or we want a little and what we want. And so uh, I was reading, our assumption is that, that the rich are, are happier. I was reading that, that the suicide rate in rich neighborhoods is actually higher than the suicide rate in, in less rich neighborhoods. And they did this, this experiment where they, they, they studied the numbers, not an experiment, but they studied the numbers of, of suicide rates in, uh, in various neighborhoods. And they, they discovered that two people living in two different neighborhoods making the same amount of money the person who lived in a neighborhood that was slightly richer than them was 4% more likely to commit suicide than the person in the neighborhood who made the, the same amount as them. And this is amongst wealthy people. What had happened was, the thing that was going on is, is that it doesn't matter what neighborhood you live in, that contentment, not how much you have, it tends to be the key there. And so what they discovered is that amongst the rich, even amongst the wealthy, if they moved into a wealthy neighborhood and the person next door to them was slightly wealthier, he had slightly more, they became more jealous. And the more jealous they became, the less content they became. And so suicide rates went up. I discovered a quote a while ago, and I checked it uh, again this week just to make sure it was accurate because sometimes quotes from celebrities are not real. But uh, this one appears to be real. Jim Carrey, uh, TV actor, uh, rich guy, said, I wish that everybody could be rich and famous so they could discover that it's not the answer. Which is an interesting quote, and I don't even know, I don't suspect uh, currently that Jim Carrey has discovered what the answer is. But he has discovered what it isn't, and the reality is, is we believe that if I just had more, if I could just get more, if I could just get that thing, then I would be happy. Then I would be content. And yet the numbers bear out that the more you get, the more you're going to want. And so contentment is not directly linked to your bank account. It's not directly linked to how much you have, have in it. See, contentment is about something else. And so how has the Apostle Paul done this? He says, I know how to make do with a little, and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, or in or sorry, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. He's learned the secret. So what is the secret then? He says, this is the secret. I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, let's talk about that verse just for a minute. The most popular basketball player, one of the most ba popular basketball players out there right now is a basketball player named Steph Curry. Steph Curry is a Christ follower. He's, uh, he's typically, our, we go back and forth, but he's typically our family's favorite uh, uh, basketball player. Steph Curry is, is, a, is a rich man, no doubt, uh, but he left his contract, he left a lucrative shoe contract with, the, with Nike to sign a, 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 a contract with a shoe company called Under Armour. And he said the reason he did it was that Nike was not allowing him to express his beliefs. He wanted to be clear about his beliefs. And so if you go to a basketball court uh, anyplace out there and you see a person wearing a pair of Steph Curry uh, tennis shoes, you will see a person wearing a very expensive pair of tennis shoes with, uh, on the side of it. On every pair of those, you will see someplace where it says 413. And the reason that it says 413 is it's a reference to this verse because Steph Curry has made this his life 
verse. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You will see that all over. That's his, his thing. And so I think actually all of that is admirable. I think that Steph Curry is, a, is an amazing Christ follower. He's, a, he's an amazing ambassador for Jesus in, in the culture. I think it's neat that the Bible verses on shoes, I just don't think that's at all what the Bible verse means. And Steph Curry, it's interesting, is in an interesting position to have to experience this in a way that we didn't, because in the, um, in the NBA, this is, uh, uh, there's a lot of money. And interestingly enough, Steph Curry was the, was the league MVP one year, but he was, he was what they called dreadfully underpaid at making like $16 million a year, or $16 million over his, his contract. When you're making $16 million, I don't think it really matters whether it's a year or over a contract. The point is, Steph Curry made a lot of money, but they were like, Steph's underpaid, Steph's underpaid. The interesting thing is, maybe Steph put this on his shoes and maybe he does get it, because in some senses he does seem to, compared to the other NBA players who are who are um, who are MVPs? He was paid less, and so this last year, uh, Steph just got a, a new contract, and it was the richest in NBA history. I think it was like two hundred and three uh, million dollars. Um, and so, again, Lord, test me, see if I can be content, right? <laughs> It'd be interesting to see, can Steph be content with this 203? But you would think, oh, it's going to be easier for Steph. No, Steph's got it on his shoes. He needs to look at this more than ever because that verse does not mean what most people on basketball courts, in sports, and in life think it means. Because people go, I'm going through a hard time, but I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's not what that means. It is not, it is, I, I hear it used often, like as people are going onto the field as, as though, um, as though uh, Christ were a mix between an energy drink and a steroid that is going to allow them to have the greatest physical triumph on the field. That's not what that verse means. It also doesn't mean that you're going to get everything you want, which is another way I I hear this used. Well, it's a hard day, but I'm going to get my wants and dreams because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's not what the verse means. And in fact, Steph is going to have to experience what the verse means because the verse is this, is that Christ is giving strength to be content whether he has a little or whether he has a lot. And believe it or not, the Bible is giving you a truth that Jim Carrey, of all people, attests to that having $203 million is not the key to being more content than having $203. And some of you are like, I would like $203. I've got $2.03 in my checkbook right now. I hear you, believe me, I hear you. But I'm telling you this, the key to contentment is none of, is not more. It's not moving up to the next bracket because everybody is always wanting to and desiring to move to the next bracket. You have in you a brokenness. You have in you fr- from birth a rebellious nature. You have in you a desire. Remember in the garden, there's Adam there's Eve. They're in the garden. They're in perfect relationship with God, and they choose to sin against him. Why? They want his position. Everybody is always wanting something. Sometimes I say to my children, don't be a wanter. Just don't spend all your time wanting. Can I have? Can I get? Can I have? Can I? Wanting. We are wanters by nature. Adam and Eve uh, 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 do what all of us would have done, but they plunge mankind into separation from God. Why? Because they wanted. 
They wanted, they're wanters. And so what has God done in the person of Jesus Christ? He sent us a savior. He sent us a rescuer. He sent us the spirit who's a transformer. So what can we do? What is the answer to contentment? The contentment is that you can be content in any circumstance because Jesus is in you. If you lack contentment, it's not a money problem. It is a Jesus problem. If you're not content with what you have, whether you have much or whether you have little, your problem is a strength problem, not a financial problem. The problem is you're leaning on your own strength, not the strength of Jesus Christ. Verse 13, I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. What is he able to do? He's able to be content. Now, we don't, we don't hear that very well. So I don't want you to hear, though, that contentment is the means to the end. I want you to hear this, that the good news of the gospel is why Jesus is strengthening you. Jesus strengthens us by reminding us who he is, what he's about, and what he's done. I want to remind you of the parable in, in, in Scripture of a man who's walking through a field. He's walking through the field. As he's walking through the field, he stumbles over a treasure in the field. The treasure is worth so much that he goes and he sells everything he has to buy the field so that he might have the treasure. That is, is a story used to illustrate the kingdom and to illustrate this point. The reason you can be content and the reason Jesus allows you to be content is this, is Jesus is worth insurpassably more than whatever it is that you and I think that we want. Whether we have $2, Jesus is enough. And whether we have $203 million, Jesus is enough. And the strength of Jesus in in us is revealing that he is enough, and he is good enough, and he is what we want, and he is what we should desire, and he is what we should pursue. And that's where we need strength, because frankly, a lot of the brokenness in our current culture is related to consumerism and consumeristic pursuits and wants and desires. We have a lot of broken families. We have consumer debt that's insanely uh, out of out of control. We have all of these sorts of things. Why? Because we want. Why do we want? Because we haven't learned to be content. Why haven't we learned to be content? Because we don't know who Jesus is, and we don't know that he's worth it, and we don't trust that he's worth it, and we haven't allowed the joy of who he is to be the strength in us to enable us to be content. Yes, we see things, and and the sin nature in us wants it. In our house, currently, the big want uh, is a boat. My boys have discovered, uh, discovered Craigslist. They're always on Craigslist trying to upgrade to the next, to the next boat, and they're always talking about it. It's lots of, and so say, yes, it would be fun to have that, but we do not have the money for that, and you have a boat, and you just got a trolling. Learn to enjoy that right? Summer's almost over. And so I'm trying to train this into my children, but it is difficult to train into my children something that I know is the problem with me and the problem that is often in me. Yes, it'd be nicer to have a different boat. I don't get as emotional about that, but I sure would like a different car sometimes. And I'm not a car guy, guys. I don't need a Lambo, right? And I don't need to be riding in a Ferrari. I'm just looking for four good tires and a muffler that works, right? That's all I want. But I don't know if that's ever going to happen 
for me, to be honest. What, but it's easy to want it, and it's easy to look at the neighbor. And you might think, if I just had what the neighbor had, I'd be, I'd be happy. But then your other neighbor's going to get something, and you're not going to be happy. You're going to want what that neighbor has, and we become watchers. I want this. I want this. I must have this. And we go from want to want to want to want. And what's so silly about us as humans is we never, ever, ever figure out that as we chase from want to want to want to want, that not a single one of them has ever worked, right? We jump from that one. I got that. This is going to do it. Doesn't work. Jump to the next one. It doesn't work. Jump to the next one. It doesn't work. I wish it was out here. I have a guitar someplace, and I've told this story before, but it's the only thing I ever bought with, uh, without my wife. Well, permission? I don't know. She might have gave me permission, but the permission might have gone like this. Fine. Buy it. It might have been something like that. So there's this guitar. I wanted this guitar. Uh, we've been married 22 years yesterday. This is probably someplace around year two, okay? So I'm 20 years smarter because um, she's training me. Um, and so I was like, I'm going to get that guitar, and I got it. I spent like $800. That's maybe not a lot now, but man, it's, it's a lot, man. And it was a lot 20 years ago. And this is what you need to know about me. I can sort of play guitar. I mean, I have a lot of them. But the amount of guitars I own Drawn as an equation to the amount of my ability to play a guitar is not a good equation. You know what I mean? If they did greater than, less than, the amount of guitars I own is definitely greater than my ability to play said guitars well. And so I got this guitar and I'm like, it's going to be so happy because the guitar was really pretty. And so I bought this pretty guitar. I still own the pretty guitar. It stands as a testament to the fact that I got the guitar and immediately I discovered this because I spent days, guys, going, I really want this guitar. I got to have this guitar. Please let me have this like like begging and whining and uh, uh, so I'm probably like 21 uh, at, at that time and 21 is not the most mature age in the world so I was begging whining let me have it cajoling finally she got to fine get the guitar again probably not permission uh, if you're not married yet guys that's watch that tone um, <laughs> so I go and buy the guitar here's the thing I discovered I wasn't happier I'm still not happier. I can still barely play it. I hope that one day my children will play it. A lot of guitarists here played it all over the years. But it didn't make me happy. I just bought it and I owned it. But it didn't give me the satisfaction. What gives, right? I thought if I just had that, here's the reality. There is nothing that will give you the satisfaction that you want. Nothing that will give you the contentment you want except for the strength of Christ in you because Christ loves you, knows you, desires you, rescued you, saved you, and is of worth in immeasurably more than anything you can ever buy. That boat will not make you happy, and the slightly bigger boat won't make you happy. A guitar definitely won't make you happy. You could buy the Lamborghini now. I'm telling you, you'll be unhappy tomorrow because somebody will have a slightly nicer Lamborghini. And you will keep looking and looking and looking. And the reality that Paul has discovered is this, is he can do all things through Christ. Why? Because Christ is in him. And he is worth immeasurably more than all our cheap wants and cheap needs. Someone has rightly said, until we discover that Jesus is enough, nothing else ever will be. That is a true statement. That is a reflection of this passage. Guys, you can chase, 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 chase. Some of you, um, I don't know that, but in any message, sometimes people hate the message and people don't like hearing it. And somebody out there has been dying to get something. You're like, I'm going to get it anyways. He's wrong. 
I'm wrong about a lot, but I'm not wrong about this. I see it over and over and over. The word of God is true. And you can try and ignore this and try and search for contentment. And, and you can try and search for all of these things. I find us as a people, meaning, meaning I find us as people, like people, to be, to be super foolish. Because we continue to chase the things that are opposite of the things that God says. And then we continue to be shocked when it doesn't work out. And we're like, well, I know God says that, but I really want it. I really want it. Doesn't work out. You can do all things through Christ who gives you strength, which means you can stop pursuing the, the, the better than the Joneses, the, 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 the better car, the better boat, the more money, the complaining when you don't have any, the depression because you have nothing, all of those sorts of things. You can stop wanting. If you know Jesus, you have all that you need. Pray with me. 